Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. everyone and welcome back to another AMP production. Uh, this week we're going to do a special presentation on the summer of 1983. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan and we are joined today by our favorite farmer. You know they called they called uh, Marco Ramius the Vilnius schoolmaster. We like to call Jason the, the, uh, the, the sensei of Cass County. <laughs> well if I'm not producing fentanyl. <laughs> I am obviously going to be in front of the microphone with you yeah. boys. I have bumper crop of fentanyl. That's that's what we're growing in Cass County. <laughs> that's that's the only thing that you're going to be able to raise in this heat. That's it. So yeah, they as they called King George the Third Farmer George, so they call me Farmer Jace. Well, we're glad to have you with us because I I know that you you got overly excited when I said summer of 1983. Terrible. Terrible to follow eighty two. I mean, this is the roller coaster of distribution, right? We follow the 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 most magical year since what thirty nine in terms of quality and quantity with this, and it's oh, wow. boy. It's but I'm, I'm glad year. to be You're part raising of it. the question of best <laughs> glad best to help. years, huh? Interesting. I I, I don't Ugh. know about leaving seventy four off the list. Seventy four was an excellent year as well, but. uh uh, in, indeed, but in terms of sheer quantity plus quality, I think eighty-two and thirty-nine are kind of mm. just at that 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 top level, and everybody else is you know you might you might creep up there, but God knows eighty-three is not not going to be. Uh, but summer in seventy, what did you say? 72? I was saying seventy-four said, because 74. another good year of seventy-four balance between prestige, excellent prestige stuff, and excellent popcorn cinema as well, but. I don't know if the prestige stuff came out. But in the summer didn't. That's the what's lacking. Yeah, yeah, but this, the summer though didn't mean anything yeah. in in seventy four. Sure. Like the idea of the summer as this yeah. time, and so it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think. Okay, they're going to follow up this amazing summer of eighty two with all these incredible genre films, and this is what they got. I mean, maybe that it's a hangover. You know, maybe they well, just are, are you know put everything into all those movies, and then it was like, oh shit, what are we going to do? Yeah, this then maybe year? next year we'll talk about how they injected. The summer with steroids in 84 where it was just like sequels and sequels of big 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 movies and 84 is a gigantic summer year um so it's almost like this is the and little lull next know? year we're gonna yeah. do it yeah we'll do it next year. and 83 there's sequels we'll but the, they're not no, great. They're bad sequels 
That's the thing. <laughs> That's the problem. Right. Yep. So it's plenty of it's plenty of sequels. None of them really any good. But but we're talking about like third <laughs> third sequels or second sequels, if you will. Like where then in '84 you get the follow up to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Get the um, then you get big like original stuff like Gremlins and Ghostbusters that just blows everything out of the water. I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting conversation next well, year. Do you guys think that? Do you think that the bean counters were kind of in the process of trying to figure out whether the old model of if you make a sequel, you should spend less money on it than the, you know, you've got to keep making them cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And Uh, maybe they were trying that this summer and then they realized maybe that that paradigm doesn't work anymore. They thought that after Nick Meyer made Wrath of Khan for so little and made such a great movie just the year before that 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 model would probably work. And I'm guessing they, they <laughs> yeah. learned their lesson. Mm-hmm. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I know that the budget on Jaws 3 was somewhere between thirty and $40,000. Yes. And they spent 15000 of that on stop yeah. motion. But million was, dollars? <laughs> what was the budget? Do you know what the budget was? Uh, yeah, the budget on Jaws 3D was actually eight, 18, $18 million. $18 million. So $8 million more, I believe. Than Wrath of Khan, right? Wasn't Wrath of Khan brought in for like 10, 10 yeah, million? Like that. 10 it, or 12, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. So, and I'll tell you, every penny of that is on screen. Of Wrath of Khan, yes. yes every penny. Right. Well, and every, and some pennies are on screen with Jaws 3D <laughs> yeah. as well. Fully, well. Fully a third of those pennies are visible on screen about, at any one right. time. How about we do this? We'll just transition into the show um, since we're just kind of doing some prologue talk. Yeah. But, um, we will give the you know the audience what, what what the idea of the show is is that each one of us brought two movies uh, from the summer of 1983 to talk about today, and we already started talking about one. Should we just go ahead and talk about it? Uh, start at the bottom. And work well, our way we want to talk about there. Jaws 3D. Yeah, let's on start you. a deep dive and kind of a yes, it's a very That's deep dive. Yeah, very, Jaws very 3D deep is dive. Yeah. Uh, a, a deeper dive than this movie deserves. Obviously, we're 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 yes. sort of in the in the treasure lagoon with the baby shark at this point. Yeah, it's um, I picked Jaws 3D because um, I thought the trend of single strip 3D coming back in the early 80s was really interesting. It starts, I think, kind of with a movie called Coming at You, um, and then the trend for big exhibition type stuff like that like gimmicks spreads like it here in in kansas city we had worlds of fun opened the incredidome which was this theater where half of the dome was a screen and so these sort of gimmicky production methods i guess my guess is to compete with hbo and cinemax and the likes of this but we had amityville 3d we had friday the 13th part three and then universal originally wants to do with jaws 3 as a comedy yeah, Jaws 3, People Zero was what was, was the gimmicky title they'd come up with. And then they look at Single Strip 3D and they think, you know what, this isn't very expensive. God knows we're, we're not going to have to hire a, a really talented big-name cast. Roy Scheider was as far away from this as he could possibly be. Lorraine, <laughs> even Lorraine Gary. Uh, uh, God bless her, uh, said, said no thanks on this one. But uh, we, we get uh, Dennis Quaid. We get uh, the always charismatic Bess Armstrong. Uh, we get a nice big performance from Louis Gossett Jr. Um, newcomer Leah Thompson shows up. And um, we got Jaws loose in a marine theme park. And that's the gimmick. That's the, that's the, the hook. And what, what we bring to that is 3D. 
So we have a lot of things flying at the audience. We have terrible performances, except for Dennis Quaid, who is pretty good, I think. And we have a really hokey, dumb, big movie that I saw at age 10 in a movie theater in Parsons, Kansas, Southeast Kansas, visiting my family down there. And my cousin Charlie went with my older cousin, Carrie Sue, and we loved it. 3D works like gangbusters on 10-year-olds. <laughs> What about the to the single strip? Are you talking about something that like was the glasses that you wore were not like red and blue or something? Is that the new? It was it was a, it was about? a new way to do 3D that they'd come up with that was less complicated than what was first done in the 50s. It was a, a way of a, a certain uh, treated film stock or, or camera. I don't really remember, but it was it made 3D much more economically viable for the studios. Um, you still had red and blue glasses. Um, but, and it didn't look good. That was the other thing. Qualitatively, there was a huge dip. Like if you were to watch Creature from the Black Lagoon in a, a, a theater, like when I saw it at the Alamo here, it looked spectacular. The 3D was so beautiful and so seamless. This is very phony baloney. It's really dumb and it's really garish and a lot of blood and big colors and big effects, but it doesn't look good. Now, I don't necessarily ascribe that to the process, although part of it is, as opposed to the general cheap jack feel of the movie, despite its $18 million budget. The movie feels like it was done on the cheap. It feels much smaller in scale. Could be because it's in the confines uh, of the, the confines of the theme park, I think, which contributes to it. On the other hand, it is certainly a tourist love letter to SeaWorld with the dolphins and the leaping and the prancing and the snacks and what have you, and the pennants and the flags and the boardwalks and so on. Um, look, I, at the end of the day, it's not a good movie, but I think the movie is really fun. I think it's really, really fun. There is a lot to enjoy here, including a pretty good performance from a young Dennis Quaid, a pretty big, silly, over-the-top performance from Louis Gossett, and a pretty leaden performance from pretty terrible stop motion sharks and a really great performance by Shelby Overman, the hunky muscle bound uh, guy who is the first victim who goes to fix the gates, the sea gates in the lagoon and gets it. And it's, it's his 3d leg, I believe, mm, arm. or possibly his entire 3d torso uh, that we see that the, uh, that the people in the uh, sea world see and realize that's no fingers. Like the perspective is such that it looks like he has no fingers. Right. It's, it's, his arm, arm, it, yeah, it's just bad. Isn't it? It's, it's, it's really oh, it's so bad. bad. It, the, it's so the bad. 3D is very static. It's very well, inert. So it's basically so, like putting a sculpture on the screen for you to kind of look at is how the 3d works. When I was a kid, when I was 10, which would have been 10 years before y you were 10, probably around 73 or 72, in Hutchins in Kansas, in the central part of the state, here's what we had for a, an ocean theme park. One day, a guy drives in with a truck and sets up in the Sears parking lot a tank with a dolphin show. Oh, with a dolphin show. One okay. dolphin. Skippy the dolphin. <laughs> he was Australian. And I think about that with, it was so exciting when you're 10 years old, but I think about it now with the same horror. <laughs> I think about like blackfish, you know? Mm. I, I looked at the killer whale, you know, in this movie at SeaWorld and thought, uh, well, you know, how, how, how far we've come, how things have changed in terms of our attitude towards you know, towards those those poor cetaceans being 
kept in those tanks. You know, don't even get me started on Day of the Dolphin. But uh, no, but really, Skippy the yeah, Dolphin. Everyone, don't get this, me started in, on in, Day of the in, Dolphin. In, <laughs> it's not kidding. It's not just a turn of phrase. Skip, Skippy the Dolphin in a set it up and take it down, put him in the truck and drive him to the next town thing mm. is just horrifying. If and yet you were enchanted as a boy. What did I know? And like much I as figured, I was enchanted, you know, same with me and Jaws 3D. What did I know? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did I know from trash? What did I know from, from lazy garbage film? <laughs> Animal cruelty. What did All I, know? I knew was that Cindy and Sandy, the dolphins. Drunken were, Australians with their dolphins. Bess Armstrong was <laughs> making the dolphins do crazy tricks, and, and there was Dennis Quaid fully clothed on a jet ski like it was nothing. Old Mike Brody just zipping around and being old all cool. school jet ski. Old school Kawasaki jet ski, indeed. Where you have to stand that's up how on you those get suckers. around Sea World, right? Not and wet then bikes, the, baby. It was awesome. And then, of course, the the goofy water skiers doing their their sweet thing and, and forming the pyramid and the pyramid collapsing as the shark pursues them. It was absolutely great. I apologize for the squeaks. I have a, a French bulldog named Eddie who is. Uh, confined in here with me so you'll hear eddie occasionally working on a toy despite me taking it away and hiding it apologies to the listeners it's all good um i'm i am no best armstrong when it comes to animal husbandry let me assure you so this this movie kind of okay you guys both watched it what did you think i thought it was one of the okay i was gonna say first off this is easily the worst movie we've ever talked about on this podcast. I just, I think we should get that out of the way. We've never talked about such a poorly made movie on this podcast before. So that's great. I mean, I think it's good. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, not even close. In all we've covered? Yeah, not even close. Wow. I, I think, now I have so no childhood really, this experience. This is a race to the yeah, bottom. I have no childhood experience with this movie. Wow. I didn't see it. I don't mm. remember ever seeing it until this week. And so at my 48 years old, I was very attuned to the trashiness and the, just the poor filmmaking. And it was really hard to finish it. Like, I really didn't. To me, it had no yeah. redeeming value at all. I couldn't, could not connect with it. And it announces that 3D with this, like, fish head, right? If I'm remembering right. It, you know, we have the classic Jaws mm-hmm. opening where we're underwater from shark point of view, I guess, supposedly. And um, a shark get, or a fish gets eaten rather suddenly. Um, and then the head just sits there for, I thought it was about three minutes straight, just sitting in the water, like turning slowly. <laughs> and, it was, that, and, it, and then they, it that's goes, the sculpture. They matted angle. out the rest right? of the bloop, fish. Bloop, you know, like, uh, I had no idea what was going on. I was like, why are we looking? They were so proud of the 3D, I think is what the, they're like, hey, guess what you're getting, 3D. And I was like, man, that's not a good sign. That's that whole sculpture <laughs> yep. angle where it's just like this inert thing, like a hologram. Mm-hmm. That you're just, it, it's there in front of you, it's presented, and you're supposed to be awed and dazzled by it. Now, again, 10-year-old me, much as Mitch was with the cruel dolphin, was absolutely dazzled. Now I recognize, eh, not so yeah. much. But I think that it was a real live fish that they matted out the back half <laughs> of it, and there was like a cheap you effect, because that gloop, gloop was like, I was looking at it going, what well, damn thing's still alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, it hasn't been chopped in half. They've just well, matted out half of the But were they trying the to be cl- like clever by saying, "Oh, it's still got little brain function or something like that"? I don't That'll, know. Like, but that's somebody what they just did. watched a a Gira, a of the Wrath of God the night before and said, "Oh, I got an idea." No, I don't know if that reference lands <laughs> or not. Remember the guy's head roll? And no, they did right not attempt head. anything clever in this movie. <laughs> I'm I trying think, to let's, give them credit. Put that notion to bed right um, now. That's, no, I, Twenty minutes. Know, was all I could take, and that, and and the first twenty minutes, I thought, okay, you know what, 
only Universal Studios would make this movie. I totally understand what the thinking was. I, I totally get what we're going to do here. And then it just got boring after 20 minutes. It, it never it never kicked into gear. It never got on the rails. It does. It makes Jaws 2 look like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia or something. You goddamn snobs. I mean, really. Why you didn't even give it a Why don't you pitch. like shitty movies? I watched the whole guys. thing. Jeez. Um, no, Come I watched on. the whole thing, too. I mean, you everybody guys? eats McRib once a year. It's, this is not a McRib. This is like a McRib that was thrown out... Uh, Three nights earlier, dug out of the uh, dumpster. Uh, okay, please do uh, not equate it to anything with it that doesn't. Is it covered with is it still mold? In the box, at least, because I'll still eat it. Is it still in the box? I don't think so, man. It's been partially uh, yes, eaten. Then just like the that end. Finish. Um, we're all so thrilled where is to this see in Manimal himself? Simon McCorkendale is our big Manimal. Game I know. As our yes, big game Simon McCorkendale, who's and just as slimy as can be. He was. He's such. I mean, he's. He basically has a target on him the moment he steps on screen. He's way too suave, way too polished, way too into killing animals. And, of course, he faces off with Bess Armstrong, who is our biologist. And, you know, oh, you're just a girl. And, oh, you know, the struggle between man and beast supersedes your science. And he is assisted, notably, by P.H. Moriarty from uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking mm-hmm. Barrels, um, who played, uh oh, what was his name? Not Bricktop was in, uh, oh... Uh, he was the porn merchant, Harry, something, um, in Lockstock. But he's his uh, assistant. And, yeah, who gets the bright idea that there's no better thing to take into a, a water park lagoon than a grenade. So, um, it's, yeah, Mitch, I'm sorry you missed the grenade explosion because that is... No, I saw it. I, I, I didn't say that I didn't finish watching it. Oh, I just good. lost interest after oh, 20 minutes and, it's and sort of, funny sort of slogged through. It's funny because... 20 minutes was the exact point in which I text, sent Mitch a text saying, geez, I don't know if I can watch the rest of this movie. It feels like that 20 minute mark was a make or break with that movie because I definitely reached out right at that point to say, man, this movie, what's going on? And I just couldn't connect with any of that's it. That's the end of the first reel. So that's what, 20 minutes in. So we have, do we have our mechanic Shelby getting killed? Shelby mm-hmm. Overman? Does he get killed in the first so, 20 yeah. minutes when he's fixing the I gate? Think so. Okay, well, that's exciting. Oh, that's a yeah, grabber. Yeah, it was real exciting, yeah. That was really great. God, you guys. <laughs> you know, I should have done Terms of Endearment, honestly. If this I would love to I'm talk about it. Terms of a Endearment. movie as exciting as Jaws 3. It's... Jaws 3D, which is the full title. Yes. But you know the template for Jurassic Park is weirdly yes. here. I thought about it the whole you time know, I was watching The it. whole... Yeah. yeah, and again, Universal, like... They've made, I mean, it probably goes one step back to the third creature from the Black Lagoon movie where they've got him in a underwater, you know, at sea, ocean, sea world or marine land or whatever it was where they've got the gill man. And so it's a thing. It's a universal tried and true story. It's, it's tried. Thing. They tried. I'm not sure about the true part. They tried. Um, well, it's, I mean, true. certain things are dumb. Like, okay, like at the end of the Green Berets, when, when John Wayne puts his arm around the kid and they face the sunset, except in Vietnam, the sun sets the wrong way on the other side. It, it, but it doesn't matter, right? Because the movie's so dumb. Well, in this, it takes place at SeaWorld, which is in Orlando, which is in no way connected to the ocean. But they don't it's care about San Diego? that. They just kind of just plow ahead. No, it's SeaWorld Orlando. Well, I guess I guess I guess shoots. I assumed yeah, it was San Diego. Maybe I missed them say something, but because it's connected to the ocean, <laughs> right? But it, the movie was shot in Orlando, oh. and uh, it was in the Florida Panhandle. Um, but SeaWorld Orlando has no access to the ocean, 
So, gotcha. um, and yet there's a 35 foot shark, some damn shark's mother, as Louis Gossett Jr. would have us believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the more of the mythology of the Brodies and the shark. Well, it, uh, that yeah, raises the question that this is, you know, not that important, but what year is this supposed to be? Because I know it's, this is 1983 when the movie comes out, but they're way older than they were in two, right? Like way more than yeah, four years yeah. older. So. So Mike was what? Like, he sails. He, he sails his 18. boat in the pond. So now it's 10 years later. So Dennis Quaid. Well, so it's 1989. Was, uh, so 50, he was born in 54. So he'd be 29 in 83. So Mike Brody was 29. So it's like 88, 89. I just think that's so, yeah. interesting because of like, they just and decided to make this jump. 29 years old and the chief engineer right. of SeaWorld. Right. Uh, he's super accomplished. He must make his dad yeah. proud. And, you know, it works. Like I said, like you're saying, Quaid's fine in it, and he, I, I buy it. Like, if you if you did this with a lesser actor, I think you might go, well, he's not old enough to be that. And you might ask all those questions like I just asked. I didn't really care while I was watching the movie. But I did wonder. I, I just watched Jaws 2 as well, and I was like, okay, that was 78 or 9. And um, this is only four or five years later, but they're definitely way older. So I just thought, you know, they just took that license to jump into the future but i just thought it was an interesting funny thing to think about but yeah because bess armstrong was 30 so the chief biologist of the park was 30 and the chief engineer was 29 so it's a young person's game sea world but she's already had Let's claire she's already had stand. claire danes at this point before they move out to <laughs> the my so-called life neighborhood anyway that's I, I had to John figure out where Bunch i do her makes from. His debut yeah as uh, as sean this sort of lummox like younger brother who shows up and parties hardy. Uh, that's his first movie, and I think it shows. And then they both play it. Do they not both play it like they're from the country? They both kind of let their accents go. He's definitely a little cowboy cowboy boots are there. Like, you guys are New Englanders, New Yorkers, thin New Englanders. Was there something where the, where the Brody said, forget about all this and move to the middle of nowhere in, in Oklahoma or something, <laughs> like in between? <laughs> Could be they fled the shark yes. that much, right? I mean, two times is enough. Yeah, it, it's... Yeah. A, yeah, he did. He did come across as a little bit hicky for somebody who grew up on Long yeah, Island. Quaid did Didn't, too. Yeah, Quaid let his accent that, slip a little bit here and there. The, the little good old boy Quaid talk. Um, but so, so I wondered. I, I, it sounds like we all agree like a, a solid ten out of ten for Jaws 3D and and three yeah. thumbs up. Um, I, good. I, I'll take your silence for for agreement. That sounds like we all agree that this is certainly. Uh, the the movie that's in first place so far qualitative. Well, so far it is in first place on just, in box office. I just want to like maybe tick these off. Not every movie we need to talk about that, but um, Jaws 3D did make a good amount money. of money. Um, 40, 45 money. million during the summer alone. I don't know if it really had any staying power into the fall or anything, but um, that's not bad. Does eighty eight million worldwide? Eighty eight million so worldwide. That's a big chunk um, of cash on an eighteen million dollar budget. Big chunk of cash. 18. So, so you double that budget for for promotional stuff. It still did just fine for Universal, just fine. Enough to tempt old Lorraine Gary back for Jaws: The Revenge. Yep. Shake the old that's, money shark again. That is amazing that it made that much mm -hmm. money, given that that's about what what that's about what one of the other movies we're going to talk about did. That's a far better film. Well, what's that movie, Mitch? Uh, we can go ahead I guess and... you're probably talking about Sudden Impact, Mitch. 
Um, <laughs> no, Sudden Impact, by the about. way, was when I first realized that the Dirty Harry movies were absolute garbage. They get it was that's when they, they first get so bad it, after a while. It's like the first couple, you got me. Then the Enforcer, we're a little wobbly, and then <clears throat> when he goes into full Reagan era mode, that that was the plunge for me. But obviously, it, Jaws three D, a substantially better film than Sudden Impact. When Eastwood is juxtaposed against the seventies is so different than juxtaposing that exact same character against the 80s, which isn't much of a juxtaposition. Mm. It's too samey, and it's not interesting anymore. So, yeah, I think that was kind of a natural mm. thing that happened. He needed to get liberaler, like, in the 80s. Like, you know, I've learned a thing or two in my years of killing folks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put this gun away, and I'd like us to I'm talk this I'm just going to talk this out yeah, with Yeah, instead you. he's like, he looks like a homicidal weatherman, the way he dressed and everything. He the awful. sweater under the jacket uh, you know just kept that, that going. Um. <laughs> when they showed the auto mag in the trailer, the 44 yeah. auto mag, and yeah. then they had the one shot where he's backlit by the light. Yeah, on the boardwalk. silhouette with the gun, you're like, Oh, it's a comic book now. Mm -hmm. Dirty Harry is now going to be going to be a complete comic. Yeah, book. right. Like this is his lightsaber. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're totally right. Yeah, it was. It had it had become a a, a cartoon by that point. But according to what I have in front of me, Sudden Impact made sixty seven million dollars. Sure, it did. Far it less did. than Jaws three D. But War Games came in at seventy nine mm -hmm. million. <laughs> David Lightman was a master at computer games. A fast thinker. Oh, David! Maybe you could tell us who first suggested the idea of reproduction without sex. Your wife? <laughs> Get out, baby. And a promising student Hi. at an old game. Hi. With an electronic twist. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved an F. Do you? to jail for that only if you're over 18 this computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months and i want to play those games wow what we got something he found the right code word to play the game we're in but it was the wrong computer shall we play a game how can i ask you that how about mobile thermal nuclear war fine all right I have it at 67 for the summer. So as far as summer box office, it came in at six, 67. Okay. So it, the movies right. stayed in theaters a little longer back then, right? For the most part, just generally. They sure did. Yeah, yeah War Games tops out at 124. Oh. Uh, but that's probably worldwide on a $12 million budget. Cha-ching. Right. Uh, but War Games, watched it last night. Watched it last night with Archer. Um, and you he loved, loved it. Did Archer love it? Absolutely loved it. I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but at the end of it, he just goes, "Yeah, good movie." Is what he said. Like right as it went up, and he was definitely cheering and nervous. And every time they would show the the Whopper, like it was like they were showing the shark from mm. Jaws to him. Like he was like, "Oh," he'd go, "Oh, that thing." <laughs> it's got, it has that thrumming, that bassy thrum on the soundtrack when the Whopper is looked at, and it's yeah. got a look. It's got a, it's got an imposing look to it. That and the way the camera, the camera work. To get in real detailed here already about the movie, but the way the camera like roams, pans across it, roams around it, everything is makes it seem very um, ominous. Well, what we have is your classic Eddie Deason vehicle. <laughs> yes, um, we do. 
<laughs> with uh, with about uh, I think uh, a, a year's worth of prep work by Martin Brest, who was then uh, who, who then left the production after I think falling way behind um, and going way over budget very quickly in the first week, and Batum got brought in, um, which I think might explain why we have two John Batum movies coming out in the summer of '83. I think one of them was kind of unplanned on his part. But he, John Badham knows this, he knows movies like this in and out. You know, the guy is just, he's, he's going to get you across the finish line and he's going to deliver a product that is probably not going to suck, could be really great like this one, but is generally going to be at least average like Blue Thunder. But this movie with a screenplay that's perfectly of the moment, as Mitch will touch on with, with real world events, some really, really winning performances from a stellar cast, including supporting players who are all great, and a premise that felt really real and really possible and yet really new and really sci-fi at the time. We were, personal computers were just coming into their own in 83. You know, we had the IBM PC showing up like one in every high school. And here we had this, this smart-ass, charismatic kid who was able to do incredible things with it, things that we fantasized about. Oh, I want to get away from my parents. Maybe I'll book myself a trip to Paris. He could do all this stuff. Well, turned out that he could do it a little too well, and he got he knocked on the wrong door or dialed the wrong phone number when he was war dialing, as we call it, and he discovered a secret supercomputer that had access to every ICBM in the inventory thanks to a failure at the human level and all the crewmen got taken out and relays got put in so this computer could pull the trigger and now it's a race against time or something like that uh either way it's an amazingly entertaining movie at kind of every level mm -hmm. like it's got really great snap crackle poppy dialogue a lot of it is very very funny his relationship with his parents is really funny mom making raw corn on the cob is really funny and dad buttering it with butter a slice genius. of butter bread is really a, funny a genius it's great he's an asshole to his teacher and <laughs> great and then joke we have great great perform I mean, we have like john wood and we have ali sheedy and we have barry corbin and all of these really really good supporting players who all do a great job yep. it's kind of one of those movies that you look at it and you realize that at the end of the day when it starts from pre-production and an idea to getting to this point, it's a miracle. Like we've talked about how every great movie is a miracle, like in terms of the, the, the alchemy that makes it. And this to me is one of those movies that's so much better than it needs to be. Jason, do you know whether, um, was, was the film cast and Fraker was shooting it and the sets were built when Martin Brust was working on it and then left or did they, did they, is any of Martin Brest? He was dismissed by twelve after twelve days of shooting, so it was cast and everything and so else. Is any they of his footage shooting. left in the movie? Do we know? Yes, it says several scenes shot by him remain in the film. Um, Adam said that Brest had taken kind of a darker approach, um, and and his job was to kind of lighten it up, and and he did a great job of that. He turned it from what Brest had envisioned, which was more a sort of kids going undercover kind of thing, to. Um, Sort of a North by Northwest, kids caught up in events and, and getting through with, with Moxie kind of thing mm -hmm. is what he did. I really noticed uh, the scale of the, of the production just in terms of how many people are in the movie. Just I know that sounds crazy, but like I think if you made this movie today, you probably wouldn't have as much human 
you know, traffic in the film, as many people going back and forth and in the spaces and, mm. and you know, that big set. I remember one of my friends worked on this picture. Was He acted in it and he worked on several Batam movies and got called in. Uh, and I remember him telling me about this, just the, the size of that war room set, that it really was was just massive and you just felt like you were inside a real a real space uh, but I don't know there's something about the production values of the film that struck me as kind of quintessential 1980s studio muscled lots of extras lots of background players uh, lots of single bit parts like you know one lines and two lines which means you got to pay those guys differently than if they're silent silent bits or if they're just extras and it, I just think it has a scale to it when you think about this and costing less than Jaws 3D, right? <laughs> a, third. a third. It costs a third less than it's, Jaws. It's yeah. just 33%, it, only 12 it's million. It's extraordinary. Yeah. This is definitely... And you figure at least a, a million and a half went into the, into the war room set. Yeah. At least, yeah. This is definitely money on the screen. And I love that they don't, they didn't even cheap out and... Um, keep the war room like they open the war room with this interesting it's very bare bones but like the behind the war room moment where they walk a couple of characters are walking in and you ask yourself every time i watch this movie i go wait where is this and it's kind of these pillars and this echoey and it looks like the just an empty warehouse maybe with some pillars in the middle of it and then they walk along and then they turn and and tilt up you know like crane up to show the war room and i always thought that's it's really nice to take us from that to you know from one place to another instead of just being like Oh, this war room is this big thing, and you never see what's behind it. I don't know. I just think I think that's an interesting touch because it gives it a big reveal. So from then on, there's a richness to that set because of that comparison between the background and the foreground. Um, yeah, and it's classic. You know, obviously there's a there's like a, a bit of homage to Ken Adam. Like this is this is a war room. Like when was the last time we saw a war room like this? You know, Bond movies and. Doctor Strange Love, right? You know, like I'm not sure if I'm missing anything, but it seems like definitely we're saying, hey, we're going Ken Adam on this, and um, yeah, it's great. And everybody, yeah, everybody, every little line, every character has character. The guy who's like his second in command, um, Dabney Coleman's second in command guy, he looks a bit like mm -hmm. a like a Popeye character or something. Um, <laughs> uh, but he's got a lot of character, even though all he's doing is spewing information at all times. Like all he does is mm -hmm. spew information that we need at given moments. Yet he has a lot of characters. Uh, the woman that's his assistant, seeming she's, she's got great. you can kind of tell there's a relationship there, right? Because she. All you need to do if you really want to show something is have him pause for a second, and straighten the, his tie, take that. It's like an intimate move, right, to straighten the tie. And then she actually, then they go a step further. She takes the gum and then she eats the gum, which really grossed Archer out. Ah. But um, nevertheless, it's like, wow, they really have a relationship. This is like everything's like living and breathing in this movie. And I got to say, I, you know, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. It, was a, it had a real impact on me when I saw it as a kid, a little bit scary. Mm. Um, I was terrified. This is also the summer of the, the day after, the, the year of the day after, uh, which makes the right. 83 the year I was terrified of <laughs> nuclear war. Um, School <laughs> child traumatizer, 83. Yes. Yeah. Um, Ali, every time I watch it, I think about how amazing the relationship is between Broderick and Sheedy, how real it feels, like how it feels like teen. neither of them are teenagers at this point. Maybe Sheedy is still. I can't. I don't know how old she was. I think Broderick was definitely like 20 
or so. She was, 20, she was 21. Uh, and he was 20-something, she was right? 20, they were the same age. He was oh, 21 really? and she was 21. Well, they just give – there's all these little beats. Like there's that one moment where he's trying to walk away from her and she like pins him with her legs for just a second. That felt like such mm-hmm. authentic teenager flirtiness. And also tells us this is going to happen later. Just keep mark this down because this relationship's going to happen later. So that when we get the little romantic beats that are neither here nor there, it's not like a big deal in the plot. But at least uh, their relationship keeps growing through the movie so we care more and more about them. It's just a really well done bit of writing on a character level. Um, solid plot too. Everything's pretty pretty solid. But I just think everybody's like crackles, you know performance wise those big pillars that you see at the beginning are actually the giant springs that the entire complex oh, sits on sure okay to shockproof it against a nuclear attack interesting the entire thing is sitting on like these massive five thousand ton springs so if the if the mountain does take a direct hit it sort of bounces a little bit and everybody's okay so this was really setting him up as ferris bueller right like it was it very was ferris bueller resourceful smart assy yeah delinquent charismatic delinquent yeah a little bit yeah like obviously yeah, this we... guy's a little bit ferris is never going to care enough about you know <laughs> video games or anything but uh he, this is the nerdier side of ferris bueller definitely but um but yeah it's definitely you well, see remember the DNA. in ferris bueller i asked for a car i got a computer uh-huh so yeah that's what he uses right. to to mess with his attendance at school Mm-hmm. And here he is. He changes his grade in school changes, and changes her grade, too. But there is something to be said for casting these actors, he and Ali Sheedy, close to the age that they're playing as opposed to and then to, to appeal to a young audience versus Jaws 3D where, yes, Leah Thompson's in there, but something about it feels old and creaky. It doesn't feel youthful. But what we're seeing in both of these movies and several more that we're going to look at today is Hollywood had decided that young people want to see other young people in movies, and this would you know become one of those things that would really dominate the the 1980s is these young yeah, protagonists. What, so so like to get into that because I did want to talk about that a little bit that this seemed like a sort of a boost in teen driven movies, no matter what genre. It's like this is a thriller. Teen, what teens are at the center of it. We're going to talk about a couple other teenage movies uh, that are more just straight comedies or dramatic comedies. Um, are we kind of does this kind of all start with Porky's a little bit? Like Porky's makes all that money, and then they do it. There's a bunch of sex romp type stuff that happens eighty eighty one, and then maybe they're starting to see okay, we can make that money, but we can also maybe add some quality to these movies, like play around with the genre. But people, do, you know, so we can we can get those teenage butts in the seats just by having the teenagers be in it, no matter what kind of horror, comedy, or drama, or thriller, or whatever. So I was kind of curious, like this really starts to boost, and then then we get into the John Hughes era, which this accelerates it into into orbit. But um, mm-hmm. it is interesting to how many teen movies we have on our lists uh, today. Of 83. Kids are buying tickets um, now. To the, talk the, about. the movie theaters have yeah. gone to the malls. Now that's the other thing that we're going to see is the major thing about distribution in the 1980s is that the mul- the multiplexes mm-hmm. at the malls, which means lots of screens, and kids are going to the movies, and they become the yeah. the main target audience for these these pictures. Can we even talk about how awesome and what a grabber the opening of War Games is with John Spencer and Michael Madsen? How great yeah, that that's is! Great. Incredible. Oh my God, I do, I do it's always so want to see. I do always kind of yearn for just one more beat. It feels like it kind of ends. 
I wonder what happened. Like, he decided not to shoot him, obviously. So then what, how did that, I kind of feel like I'm missing something there a little bit, but it was, it's still great. But we see him again. Well, yeah, and they jump right to the conference. Yeah, we see him again. Talk so, about but, how the guys all failed, but we don't. But no one, no one mentions. Yeah. You know, well, we had one launch control officer shoot another one. So, hopefully well, we see he both of them the again. Trigger, but there he is. Yeah, yeah we, taking out his little sad sack computer keyboard, which is completely out of place on the missile control console. It's clearly like they took like this Acorn microcomputer and just set it on the counter for him to type into. I I'd th- have to point right. out that the first thing you see in that scene, so they've they've decided to go with the computer. You know, wa- uh, the Whopper is now going to be the the main decision maker, taking the human element out of it. Cut to they're just taking the chair out. Like there's no reason to take the chair out, <laughs> but they're really that's very movie you know movie like illustration of how we're taking the human element out of here. We're not even giving them any place to sit. The sons of bitches, if they want to be in here, they got to remove all, all toilets. <laughs> yeah yeah the food court's being shut down all toilets removed right. yeah it is it is pretty hokey that it's just one computer keyboard and two chairs that are removed and suddenly it's now under robot control yeah, the, and a guy missile? inserting some sort of no missile frederick what we- seen what the Please. frederick weissman documentary called missile from 1988 no. i did a million years so, ago yeah he, yeah he, it, it, just I'll, I'll read the wikipedia synopsis because it'll say it better than i can chronicles the 14-week training course for the men and women of the united air, uh, u.s air force charged with manning the icbm silos it's crazy it you know frederick wiseman sometimes sometimes are more interesting than others but you know it's like that fly on the wall no talking heads just observing these guys being trained mm-hmm. and I, and of course, it's it's terrifying, <laughs> you know, like that business yeah. with the guns and the, each guy having the key and each one having a forty-five and each one being trained to shoot the other guy if he doesn't play along. Um, it's all it's all true. And at the end of the day, though, what does that accomplish? If if the guy refuses, how is shooting him going to still get him to turn his key? Right? Well, then don't you get his well, key? Well, you have to go over the. You, you can't. That, that There's a reason that the consoles are too far apart for one man to stretch and turn them. That's why you have the two-man yeah. rule. So if you, I mean, it's it's weird that you have the gun. Because, okay, say a guy goes crazy. Well, I'm going to launch all these missiles myself. Well, you can't without me over here. Okay. Well, I'm, I have second thoughts. I'm not going to launch the missiles. Okay. How is shooting you going to get the missiles right. launched? So it's a weird yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's yeah. a weird thing. It's a good point. Maybe it's a macho thing. It's I exciting. Know. I don't know. Maybe they just... Maybe the launch control officers with their little ascots and their jumpsuits and stuff feel like such weenies that they feel they need to have a gun to, I don't know, feel like they're part of the real military or something. But I do know that the so-called PRP or personnel reliability program that they subject these guys to is so rigorous that it doesn't take much in terms of aberrant behavior or out of the ordinary behavior for you to get removed from your silo. Like mm-hmm. they were, they're they're really, really, really rigorous in in how. Now that was at the height of the Cold War. Maybe now, you know, when you have like these guys cheating, this cheating scandal with these guys, these launch control officers cheating on their on their qualification exam. Maybe it's less rigorous now. Now that the Cold War is sort of, well, I guess spinning up a little bit with Ukraine, but who knows? But it used to be like you you said did thought the wrong thing and you weren't given the key anymore. Were you conscious so. of the of the the little houses with the fences around them that you would see littering the um, 
planes and Missouri. Like we had all these missiles that were out here, right? Yeah, Just my, like that. We had the Titan silos. Yeah. yeah, we had the old Titan ones. Yeah, there's yeah. one that's not. Too yeah, I far love that the from... house at the beginning. Sorry. I was no, just, go ahead. I was just going to say, my dad from. would point out one. There was one that's not too far from Warrensburg, Missouri. So when we'd be driving south to Springfield to visit family, he would point over there. I, was my dad fucking with me? I don't know why he would do this. I don't know. Be like, oh, man. there's a missile silo over there. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then those visions of like, you know, streaming like contrail going into the sky would fill my imagination for the rest of the day. Um, but yeah, that my dad was definitely hyper, my, you know, hyper aware of that kind of stuff and would point it out to me. So yeah, I remember that. Sorry, Jason. I love the phony baloney house that they enter at the beginning. That's, that's the cover for the missile with all the fifties furniture yeah. covered with dust. I thought that was great. It's I very that was crystal really skull. A, a cool touch. Indiana Jones walking into that yeah. very similar house before he fridge. Yeah. Frozen, the fridge. frozen in time. Like the air force is like, we built it when we built the silo and we don't need to update it because no one should be coming. Nice metaphor here. So, for the movie. Mm-hmm. But great. I thought that was a great touch. And I love the sign in the hallway outside the outside the control room. Anyone you're caught urinating yeah. in this area will be discharged. So I, I guess what sometimes they have for? to wait out there for a long time. I don't know. That's all I can think of when I, I see that sign. It's such a weird I, one. I can't even imagine how boring the duty is down there because they sit down, they reset the alarm, and then what? Right? Well, can they what go do you to the do bathroom for, for your shift? Like, what could you leave yeah, for that long? What if even? the alert comes in and you've exactly. got to write your passwords down? Right. Yeah. So I don't know what they do down there. I, you know, they don't seem to maintain the missile. They seem isolated. They've got that giant vault door that closes behind them. So I don't know. It takes a certain kind of guy to do it. A guy who <laughs> obviously smokes a lot of weed, as John Spencer's character clearly did. Sensamia. Um, but he says Sensamia. <laughs> sens- <laughs> Oh, she said it over the plants? Yeah, man. Made Thai stick <laughs> taste such, like oregano. Such a, weird, such a weird conversation to be having. I immediately think, like, should these guys be, like, they would be drug tested to the nth degree. Like, how could they possibly? But um, but it's great, right? It's it's so humanizing, yeah. which is great because then they get down there and they're immediately hyper professional. And I love the whole touch of, uh, just give it a little thump with your finger. Like, he knows these systems back to front, which tells us that this guy knows his business really well, which makes his hesitation and his murmurs of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. all the more poignant, I thought. I thought it was great. Because he's the veteran of the two. He's the one. Yeah. Madsen's calling him sir. You know, you get the idea that he's much more experienced down there and that he's the one that hesitates. Yeah. God, you almost just want him to get That's... shot. Though. Like, I keep thinking I would have probably just shot him, like had the gun go off and then gone to the title or something, just because it doesn't really matter to see them again. Like when you see them again, we're they're already showing us that the human element's gone. I feel like the stakes would be so much like that'd be a, such a great stake setter right at the beginning to just have them shoot them, even if it doesn't make sense. It already doesn't make sense. Just shoot them. Pull the trigger. This is a really yeah, anti checkoff, right? Yeah, hearing, right? Hearing, this movie's like the anti checkoff's yeah. gun. No guns go off in the whole damn movie. Because yeah, the screen going black and a gunshot and then credits would be pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. Know. Maybe they pulled. Maybe they did do well, that. Maybe that's they the thought kind of power eh, that we reserve PG. We reserve powerful moments like that for Jaws 3D. I think we should say that in typical. I could tell Mitch is Hollywood, nodding. Mitch agrees. And uh, Hollywood prescience, where they get lucky every so often, it would only be what September when there would be almost there was a far, false alarm incident in the Soviet Union and a. And a guy uh, almost was ordered to launch and didn't, a Soviet uh, military officer. Right, Jason? 
I think he got a, a, there was a signal, some kind of warning on their computer and uh, that said the U.S. is launching XYZ. And um, and he was the one guy who's like, nah, I think that, you know, I think that's a, a, a you know, someone put a, a 30 Kopec fuse in there and it needs to do a 50 Kopec job. I think it's probably just a burnout or something. And he didn't, even though the computer was telling him to. And things were really, this was Reagan at his most belligerent. The Cold War was icy, icy cold. And NATO was launching this huge exercise called Able Archer and really doing a lot of saber rattling at the Soviets. And they were keyed up. And it was this one colonel who basically saved the world. Wow. So, but it's like in, uh, what, like 1997 when, uh, or when Heaven's Gate is out when we've got the whole hail Bob Comet thing. And then the next year we get, what, we get Deep Impact and we get Armageddon. So sometimes Hollywood mm -hmm. just gets that timing just right with the real world. Just right. Although I, there should have been more volcano movies when Mount St. Helens erupted, obviously. <laughs> more yeah. than just the two. That would have been better. They came out like 15 years later. Right, like 898 or something, you get Dante's Peak and Volcano, when in fact we probably should have gotten them in like 81. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all right. Maybe it was if, a, if a too soon were. sort of feeling at that point, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> could be. Could be when it happens right in Since your own country. Maybe it feels like a little bit too soon. I'm thinking if a comet actually would so, have hit the Earth, that they, we wouldn't have gotten Armageddon and Deep Impact. <laughs> but they would have shelved those. Well, then again, they would have had to so could we'd be. all be gone. So by, uh, let's just silent vote. Let's put it up to it. Uh, War Games, Jaws 3D, which is better. Okay. Well, after we a, made our vote, I'm, an I'm instantaneous tally, it looks like Jaws 3D. Huh? Yeah, after like, like literally no thought needed <laughs> War Games uh, by, by a Got lot. Okay. Where should we go Got next? It. Yes, War Games is an unbelievably superior movie, and we encourage all well, listeners to seek it out. Should we should we stick to the teen theme for a little while? We got a couple of yeah. teen themed movies. We could go to one of mine. So Jason brought both War Games and Jaws 3D. I am bringing today to start uh, Risky Business, starring Tom Cruise nice. and Rebecca nice. De Mornay and uh, Richard Mazur, who's the secret star of the whole movie. He gets that one beautiful scene as he is in every every movie <laughs> um, he's in. Um, Bronson Pinchot, Curtis Armstrong, all these great guys. I love the Curtis Armstrong man. Joey Pants, big big, like first first movie. I think. I think so. Right. I think so. I think yeah. this is his first movie. Um, and he's incredible in it. Like you, you could see this, the what he's going to become right away. You know, they obviously saw something uh, when he read for the part or whatever it was, because he just like it's a big role to have for your first uh, first movie. But um, yeah. This movie, so Risky Business is not one of those movies that I was really that keen on when I was younger. If I, I if I saw it, I saw it once and kind of dismissed it maybe. Um, it's been in recent years that I've really come to love it, like ten, last 10 years or so. I love this movie. I, it, and it, I struggle with it a little, but I love it a lot. It's got a lot of the key elements to me. I mean, it just has a nice look, the nice, good, old-fashioned 80s look. It seems to be, I, you know, I'm not... Um, who shot? They had two DPs, right? And one of them was Bruce Surtees, and I can't remember who the other one was. But um, it kind of has that, you know, Scott line look to it, just a little bit. Um, the Scott Brothers and Adrian Line. Um, it's got a Tangerine Dream score, which can never go wrong. And uh, I think it kind of struggles, and I think partially it's studio notes that did this to it. It struggles a little bit um, as to whether it's a satire about 80s era Reagan 
economics or whether it um, kind of wallows in it a little bit and enjoys it too much. And I think that's what makes it kind of interesting in a lot of ways. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the original ending to the movie. The original ending definitely is more of a downer and feels more like his point was that this is not healthy. Where the ending that we got in the theater was a little bit more like, Haha, isn't this a great relationship that these two have? They're just like, they're, these two capitalists are just going to keep being capitalists and it's going to be fun. Um, the, the original ending is, ends in the, in the restaurant where they are having dinner together. And he basically expresses that he's worried that something terrible is going to end up happening to her. And she goes over and sits in his lap and he holds her. And then he goes into the the final speech that he gives um, at the end of the movie. And it's like, whoa, this is a lot different. Um, I, so I like to read it that way, even though I know the movie doesn't end that way. I read it as a satire. And um, and I, I'm perfectly welcome, you know, I welcome arguments against that. But uh, specifically the scene where they're all sitting around the diner or whatever it is, the ice cream shop, and they're... And they're asking, you know, like, do you, do you just do you want to like do something with your life or just make a lot of money? And everybody goes, just make a lot of money. And he jokingly says, I want to help my fellow man. And everybody laughs and throws stuff at him. And I'm like, that seems too overt to not be like winking at the idea that this is a sickness, that these kids are entering into a world uh, that's going to that's going to uh, not be great for the rest of the world. But um, anyway, what do you guys think of this yeah. movie? I, curious about impressions, like how far you go back with it and what your feelings are about it. Mitch, well, you want to lead yeah, off? I, I think I saw it when it first came out. I was completely um, taken by it. I thought that it was like, I thought it was the graduate for the 80s. I thought it was a very, it mm. was really similar in many, many ways uh, to the graduate. And I think, and they'd be a perfect double feature together because they both have these, they both play this really interesting game between balancing satire and emo- and real emotions which is usually impossible to do usually the only satires that really work is where everybody's kind of a everybody's terrible and you'd get to laugh at everybody and this this manages somehow to go back and forth between something really cynical and something really kind of emotionally vulnerable which is similar to what the graduate does uh, and so i every time i see it i just think it's a it's it's almost a perfect movie, and because it has these tonal moves, you know, these shifts that aren't too huge, but they're just enough to bring you into the humanity of it, and then it and then it'll undercut it with some kind of a snotty remark, or you have that, the, you know, the sex scene on the on the or they're waiting, they're gonna they're waiting waiting to make love on the on the train, you know, and then that that the guy aisle. keeps yeah. looking at him, and they go they go back to him like three times, and then they finally have the pay the joke off with him being helped off and set down and given his bottle and then and then you know joel can get back onto the train so they can finally they can finally have the car to themselves uh but i just think it's so wicked and cynical and um and real moments of terror on on joel's part like not just like crashing the car is one thing and it still has that's my favorite line in the movie is you know who's the u-boat commander but but then later, <laughs> you know, later when things get really real, you know, he he's just so far in over his head and it's mm-hmm. it's just spectacular, I think. Yeah. How far in over your head do you have to be to turn your house into a brothel to pay for car repairs? <laughs> right. Pretty far. I mean, I, I, 
also this is the movie that put the Porsche 928 into the national pop culture consciousness as well. I remember as a as a kid, my mother had a friend who had one, had a Porsche 911, and her husband had a 928. But one day she was picking me up from a basketball tournament because I had a single mom and mom was stuck at work. So she called her friend Donna, who came and got me in a black Porsche 928 and the stairs that all my friends threw at that car because it was as exotic as a spaceship to them. Um, but having that the car feature so prominently in the movie as an object of freedom and fantasy for any high school boy was pretty natural and kind of a stroke of genius. And it, it definitely worked on me. I, I was completely enamored with the car. And then, you know, as a watching all, you know, watching it at a, at a house with a bunch of girls who mooned over Tom Cruise, but he was so great in it. He was so, so good. And you get, I mean, before that, he what taps all the right moves. You know, he was so great in taps that, you know, he had originally had not, not Sean had not been a, a huge part of the movie. And then uh, the director saw how intense Cruise was when he trained for the role shades of where he is now as you know everything imax stunt worthy that he blew up the part of sean and the red berets to give tom cruise a bigger role and you kind of get that but this to 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 see this part coming from that role which i think was what he did right before i think or was all the right moves right before all the right moves. um but was right was 82 yeah i think it was and um, i think it was 83 wasn't it oh really i, I might be it's wrong it's just you get why it's i mean his charisma, his enthusiasm, his vulnerability, all of those things which he basically would, would that, that phase of his career in like the late 90s where he wanted to work with like all these great auteur directors. So like, like here's John Woo with MI2 and he does, he's with Michael Mann and he's, uh, you know, there he is with Oliver Stone. And now he's kind of settled in and it's him and Chris McQuarrie against the world. But then he had that kind of, phase where he would try different things you know there, there he is with Kubrick and and you get that all of that stuff is present in him in 1983 waiting to be chipped and honed and shaped by the right directors because it's a really really good performance I really dig it yeah I also think that there's uh when other movies made in this period would have for example gone for the really cheap homophobic joke when uh Jack oh, when Jackie shows yeah. up and instead to give them this real wisdom, just this, like, just, they just know how everything works and they tell mm -hmm. Joel what to do. And it's such a, um, I just find that scene to be really wonderful and, and kind of a He's, harbinger of the real world that Joel doesn't know how to navigate. And here's somebody who's living mm -hmm. in the real world and just like, got your number so fast and here's what you need to right. do. But he opts to be respectful. Right. Yeah, the world outside of the Princeton application is uh, yeah. bigger and scarier. And, and it's, yeah, I think how he navigates it is, you're right, there are moments of sheer terror. And they're the mag magnified versions of how we all feel when we're going to get caught doing something by our parents. But it's, you know, you and I never had a chance to lose an $11 billion glass egg to a prostitute and a pimp uh, at gunpoint. And uh, as far as I know... There are no lakes around Hutch big enough for Mitch to hide a Porsche 928 in. So right. I think that's out, too. Now, I, I don't know John Engel's upbringing, but I can tell you that the, the chances to get into trouble at this level weren't there. But we're all able to put ourselves in there with, with just the idea of parental consequences descending like a sort of Damocles. And it's yeah, I there are moments in there that, that you kind of tense up and, and flinch. 
because they're so you're you're just there and so uncomfortable. Well, you mentioned Jason earlier. You said something about this like teenage freedom fantasy that you sort of get from this movie, where they're driving a Porsche around, obviously having a brothel, all this like agency that goes beyond anything any normal teenager would have. Um, you, we open with them playing poker. Like they're not acting like your everyday teenagers, like that you see on screen. Right. It's kind of seeing these these guys are ready to be adults anytime, yet they are still under that threat of teenage uh, or uh, of parental punishment and it kind of makes it more fun in a way because they're like well it's the teen romp and they're going to get grounded or whatever it is that i'm not 100 percent sure what joel's the stakes are is he going to get grounded is he not going to get to go off to college anyway i don't know what that is all we need to know is that he doesn't want his parents to get mad at him like that seems to be the right which seems like the ultimate that that seems like his main incentive because we know that no matter what happens he's not going to be forced to not step into his predetermined life of privilege Right. That's that's waiting for him. Whatever, you know, Princeton and whatever hedge fund he's going to start or, you know, or Goldman or whatever is all waiting for him. So this is his chance to do what all teenagers do, which is kind of this is his rumspriga, right? He's going to go nuts right before he's forced to to slot into adulthood and responsibility. He just does it in a way that us middle class kids could only imagine, which is, you know. Yeah. why it's a fun movie and what you're saying could be i mean we could read it as the sly satirical angle of it is that ultimately there really aren't any stakes here and that's the idea of the privilege that he lives in that could be what the movie's about maybe we're just reading into that in hindsight i don't know if that would have been the intention of paul brickman we haven't mentioned the writer director's name yet paul brickman but um was he intending for that to be the case? Maybe. I mean, it's certainly there's the big moment. The moment of truth is the scene where, like a horror movie, classic horror movie, he closes a door and his dad is standing there like ah, like a jump scare. And we're sure, you know, then he's talked to Richard Mazur's character. So we're sure he's about to find out about it all. But instead, it's this massive victory beyond what he even thought was possible for himself. He never, from the very moment Princeton is mentioned in that um first person POV sequence that we have that uh, kind of takes us from one sequence to another. Uh, he's immediately like, I'm not getting into Princeton, dad. What are you talking about? You know, he doesn't think that's even possible for him. So not only does he not get, have um, suffer any consequences ever, other than having to pay for that egg. Um, he has, he gets more than he ever thought he would get. And it's kind of like, is this saying, is it celebrating? You can argue, is it celebrating the eighties excess and that people wallow in their privilege and good for them and too bad for mm. you? Or is it saying satirically, yep, this is how it is. This, this is how shitty the world is for 99% of the people, <laughs> you know, but here's the 1% well, in what you is- have to look at. When dad is played by as much of a milk toast as Nicholas Pryor, right, who is anything but an imposing, intimidating figure as an actor, I, I, I contrast him with uh, with Bert, what's his name, who was the, the dad of, of, uh, of Jill Eikenberry and Arthur, right, mm-hmm. who was terrifying, who was a, you know, a terrifying big game hunting businessman who you were absolutely sure would have Arthur killed if he so much as looked at his daughter wrong, whereas... Joel's dad is is just he doesn't he doesn't ever seem like he's going to come down on him like a ton of bricks like at, at, at most it's like well you know what how about how about you I take away your country club privileges for this summer son how does that grab you right at, at, at worst it doesn't feel like there are going to be major consequences and yet we're all terrified of our parents finding out fill in the blank whatever we did and I think that that's where I think you're right there's 
there's a celebration to a certain extent of a of burgeoning yuppie excess um, on the part of all of these guys who are are all headed to the Ivy League. Regardless, you know, if if Joel doesn't have the grades, his father can certainly build a new natatorium, right? So it's not he's going to get in. He's going to take the the Kushner route, if you will, into an Ivy League school. So um, yeah, I, I I think that the the consequences there are just the the classic my my mom and dad finding out and me getting into trouble, which could be whatever. Yeah, but and, it's still a great movie, and I really it's entertaining think as hell. You have to. It's hard not to read into it that the thing that the the one thing he gets in trouble for. So he, mom finds a crack in the egg. We don't even know when this happened. Right. He can't even see it. By the way, the last moment of the scene is he's still trying to even see it. So it's so imperceptible and minor that it means nothing in the grand scheme of any anybody else's life. And mom is pretty mad. Now, that's she reminds me a little bit of my mom, the way she my mom gets mad, which is this coldness and like this. Th- this is unacceptable and you will deal with this. But then the dad goes, ah, she'll be all right. Just go do a little yard. Just put in a little yard work time. Like, this is how we do things around here. She'll be mad for a little while. You go do a thing and then it'll be fine. But I really think the fact that this like the one thing that went, actually went wrong in the end that was like perceive perceivably wrong was actually an imperceptible thing. It's so uh, it's hard not to think yeah, that, that had right. to be like intentional, yeah. uh, the, metaphorically speaking. Hollywood is uh, the best at doing at having it both ways, and you know the Graduate kind of has it mm-hmm. both ways too. So it's a it's part of a grand mm. tradition of satirical comedies coming out of the Hollywood system, where you can be critical of something, but you can also kind of you know you can kind of also give the audience this these pleasures of things that they will never get close to and yeah yeah you know to touch on what john was talking about with consequences janet maslin in her review says quote you would be hard pressed to find a film whose hero's problems are of less concern to the world at large (laughs) and yet you feel them you and feel yet, them while you're watching. Talked about it having an abundance of style and all sorts of other good stuff. But you're right. It's yeah. It's 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 all relative, isn't it? Problems are all relative. You mm-hmm. and I have it much better than someone in a in an earthquake ravaged Haiti, and Joel has it much better than we do. Yeah. Uh, just a quick and question. And obviously, all, we've all got it better than the audience of Jaws 3D. That, that goes without saying. Oh, everybody. Yeah. Um, anybody spot who, Vicky, Vicky, the um, friend. Uh, prostitute, the one at the end that's helping him, uh, helping Joey Pants sell the stuff. Anybody spot who that was? Peter Falk's wife. Peter Falk's Mrs. Miss the real Mrs. Columbo. Mrs. Columbo. Sheridan, Sheridan East, Yes, the the real yeah was on a couple of episodes. I believe they met on an episode of Columbo, and then anyway, just the, I I did not know that until I watched it again yesterday. Columbo connection. Didn't realize who that who that was. So always got to point out the Columbo connections. All right, what do we talk about next? Be nice. Oh, so we keep it young. We're only halfway through here, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's yeah, jump into do that. The, so, so you've got risky business on one hand, and I think you know when you're looking at these great summer comedies, you've got Valley Girl on the other. Oh, gag me! How could you? For sure. Besides, it's totally gnarly birth control. <laughs> I can't stand it. Okay, so he's awesome. <laughs> Valley Girl. She's out there somewhere. This is the story of a boy from Hollywood who never dreamed the girl he'd want most was down here. Hello. Hello. Who invited you? 
Oh, wow, you mean you have to be invited? Well, that explains it. What? Well, everyone is dressed for it. See, if I had been invited, I would have known this was a costume party. Right. <laughs> it's the story of a girl from the valley who never dreamed she'd ever be seen with a boy from over here. Like, I'm not getting out of this car. All right, but when they attack the car, save the radio. So when can I see you again? I'm here with you now. I know. This is the story of Randy and Julie, the way they come together, and the people who try to pull them apart. Like, don't you think they have parties over there? Oh, where? At the zoo? This geek that she's with could scar her for life. God, life? If you think she's confused, you should see her father. I'm together now. Be right there. Valley Girl is extraordinary for so many reasons, one of which is that I think they made the movie for about $100,000. It was made for next to nothing. Oof. It has the greatest collection of needle drops of maybe any movie ever made. Like, every single song that they've got um, is fantastic. It completely evokes the, the time and, um, and it's hip. I mean, these are bands that would, that would become really well-known uh, that were kind of, in some cases, more local to the L.A. And it's, you know, it's the picture that, that Nicolas Cage really, you really see his potential as a quirky leading man. Um, you see uh, Frederick Forrest and Colleen Camp <laughs> back from the crashed helicopter in Apocalypse Now to uh, be a, uh, a hippie couple, hippie, soon-to-be yuppies uh, couple, and for me, because I lived in Los Angeles at that time, uh, it's it's dangerously nostalgic in terms of all the different places, everything from the from yeah. the Sherman Theater to the to the Delamo Fashion Center, the Sherman Oaks Galleria. I mean, there's just so many recognizable things to me uh, that it that I can't even be objective about that part of it. But I just think it's like mm. it's an extraordinarily uh, interesting, clever riff on Romeo and Juliet. She's from the Valley. He's from Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood guys are exaggerated the same way as the Valley girls are exaggerated. It's it's so it's definitely a comedy, um, but it somehow has this humanity all the way through it. Probably thanks to the direction of Martha Coolidge, and um, I just think it gets. It's every time I see it, I admire it, and I, I think it's a movie that that has continued to just age beautifully yeah well as a fan of both michelle mayrink and eg daly i, e. I like daly the movie so as well. cute well, yeah, and michelle mayrink who, who of course charmed everybody's socks off in real genius but who is charming in this as well and who is now like a yoga teacher or something which is too bad another martha coolidge movie, a great right actress. real genius was yeah 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 she did mm -hmm. that uh yeah isn't she president of the dga now i think maybe i'm not sure oh martha wow coolidge? maybe I think you might be or, right. Or am I kooky? Am I wrong? I don't know. I could be wrong. So our, what of our screenwriters? Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane. What else well, did they? Oh, wait, Jake, yeah, Jake Wayne Speed. Was Jake's, Wayne was Jake Speed, and I worked for those guys and, and uh, was going to do a movie for them, and it didn't turned out it never, never quite oh. happened, but I spent a lot of time with, with both Wayne and, and Andy, and 
Uh, they were very, very nice to me, and uh, it was a, a really great experience. Uh, but, you know, they were, they had a few, they scored with a couple of studio pictures, but, you know, mostly they made independent movies. They, they did Night of the Comet, which is another movie that I really like. Mm, um, I do, too. And then, uh, frankly, they got, uh, Wayne got involved with um, with some producers in South Africa and <laughs> was doing a lot of business in South Africa in the 80s, which was controversial, to say the least. But I'm pretty sure that Jake Speed was mm. shot. I think it was shot in South Africa, but um, they were both, they were both, you know, really, really nice guys to me. And that movie, they made it, I think they financed it themselves or, or they, they had a distribution deal and went and went and got the money against it. I'm not sure what the finances were, but it's made for next to nothing and it doesn't look like it. It looks really good. Uh, made for 350,000 oh, made okay. 17 million. So, it 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 uh, it ain't Halloween, but it definitely made a so the same budget as Halloween. I thought I the, so that hundred thousand yeah. dollars was was apocryphal. So three three fifty, okay. So same budget as Halloween. Very interesting. I mean, figure plenty went to music rights. I'm sure, even though you know who would be the biggest. I don't think on, so. I, guess I, I think they work. made a deal. Um, so they had a music they had a music clearance person, and it was before everybody was doing all these needle drops. And I my guess would be that. Huh. It didn't cost them much when they did it, and over the years, I know, I'm sure they've had to have some, you know, I know there was some stuff that wasn't available for a while, some tracks on it. Yeah, um, I, I imagine they had to go through some perpetuity rights or something later. I bet you they didn't pay for that stuff at first, right? So, because this is still pre, right on the edge of home video, right? So maybe right. they would, weren't thinking about having those perpetuity rights or whatever you call them, where you can... You know that that music's embedded in that movie no matter what. Um, right. Because you remember when Blood Simple got re-released on video mm -hmm. and they had changed out um, all the they changed out all the needle drops and it oh it's just terrible. Yeah. Now the now the real it music's back in happens. it. But it was rough. Did either of us? Did any of us know that Valley Girl was remade in 2020 with Logan Paul? Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, no. I heard something about it. Oh my God! Insignificant. And, well, Mae Whitman and Judy Greer, which musical. gives it some cachet, but Logan Paul. I heard it was uh. awful. Um, oh. So I got a question, you know, we already kind of hinted at it, but as far as these like 80s comedies or 80s teen romps that even can fit them into the horror genre, are, are women just, do they just have a better batting average in general at directing these movies? Because I feel like most of my favorite ones, Valley Girl, Martha Coolidge, uh, uh, Amy Heckerling with uh, Fast Times, you've got Penelope Spheris, and you've got um, whoever, what's her name, that did Slumber Party Massacre. Which I oh, kind yeah. of fit, even though it obviously goes into the horror, it very much fits into what Valley Girl does, right? Like mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. They just seem to, it's like, is it the is it the skeevy male gaze that ruins these movies a lot of times? So women are just automatically a little better at it? Like they cut that edge off so that you can enjoy the movie instead of being a little grossed out by it? Or what well, is it? Know. Because like, I, the sex I would say the direction is... not to... Both this yeah, but it's not skeevy it's like skeevy. it is... Yeah, it's 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 got it's, emotional. It's got reason to be there. It's yeah. got always got an intent. It's not just for for TNA. You know, right? That's what I always think about these things. I'm like, huh? You know, you the the studios must have loved it. You're getting your TNA. You know, you're still getting that. But the scenes actually mean like the seduction of of Elizabeth Daly. Uh, it could just be you know cheesecake. 
but it actually has some like dramatic drive. There's that characters are actually doing something in the scene. I don't know. I, I, and not to generalize it, I don't want to generalize it as women just do better, but the direct Coolidge's direction, and this is great, scene after scene, or well-crafted, the whole gambit of hiding in the shower se- sequence is amazing. Like It's really well done. You're kind of nervous for him, but you're having fun with him. And this whole idea that he's just waiting for the, her to come into the bathroom finally is, is clever and fun. And it's just well-directed. And, and I don't know. And um, I just felt like there's just more character in this movie than there were in a lot of the same kind of movies. So I just wonder if it's not that touch. You know, that's... That special touch that women have, that eye, that understanding. Well, if you're going to have female leads like you do in this movie, you have so much agency in the female characters. Understanding the female character might help make the movie a little better, you know? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just uh, I just find that I tend to enjoy these this era and this genre a little bit more when it's a woman behind the wheel. But You've also got uh, people who are the right age, too, because Cage was 19. And Foreman was 21. E.G. Daly was like 22. So, yeah, they all sort of fit their who, who they're playing, which mm-hmm. I thought was, yeah, you don't have like 20. It's not, it ain't 90210, you know, where you have 27 and 30-year-olds playing high school kids. They all kind of feel right. Yeah, and is Cage, so Cage has done the tiny bit in Fast Times and then is Cotton Club right before this or right after this? I'm trying to think of his career Cotton trajectory. Cotton Club was like 81, wasn't it? No, it was later than 81, I think, wasn't it? Was Cotton Club really his first, first movie? 80, 84. No, you're right. 84. Oh, so it was after this. Okay. Um, just thinking about his career trajectory and how he got a pretty big part here. I mean, obviously, he's got connections, you know, Hollywood royalty and all. But um, I don't know. It's just it's a great performance. It's like, I just want to ask though, another question. Whose choice was it to shave his chest hair that way? He has, we all know that Nicolas Cage never, since he was like 12 years old, has not been bare chested, right? But he has right. that patch of hair. Is that like a, supposed to be a punk rock thing? Or what is he trying to do there? He has that little delta of hair right between the pecs and the rest of it's smooth. And there's no way that was real. I just, I just looked at that and went, is this the first where Kate, first time Cage came to the city, goes, I got an idea. Let me, can I just run <laughs> right. with this? It feels like an know? actor's choice. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It definitely feels like an actor's choice. Yeah. I don't I know what it, else man. to say yeah, about this movie. I just no, dig it. I, th- I had no idea it was so cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Me and I had no idea it, it was so, the budget was so small because it, it did such good box office. And, you know, it was such a staple uh, it, with that VHS box that you, it looked like a bigger movie yeah. to me. Yeah. I mean, it only made, like, $20 million is nothing to see that. It only made $20 million less than Risky Business. So Risky Business made 34 in the summer. It might have made more overall. Um, Valley Girl made $14 million off of that little budget um, in the summertime. Uh, so pretty impressive take. You know, a pretty big hit. And obviously it's mm. its footprint on the cultural on the culture is huge. Like, I didn't know immediately after this movie came out, not even knowing this movie existed when I was this, you know, nine years old when this movie came out, I immediately knew what a Valley Girl was and how they talked. Like, that became such such a culturally impactful thing, the language of this movie, the vernacular. That immediately after that, everyone in every corner of the country knew exactly what well, that was. when did what the song meant, come out? Know? The year, it was 82. So the song was mm-hmm. already out, so it's... Frank and, yeah, right, Frank but and the Moon Unit were... Is this the the movie was basically to capitalize on the popularity of the song, yeah. right? Right, yeah. but but hearing people converse with the likes and the all of that stuff was 
yet to come. And with, with and then when this movie came after that, people were doing it. I mean, I guess lots of mm-hmm. TV characters were aping it. You know, it's just can't be. You know, like you said, Mitch, the score, or the the soundtrack's insane. Like every one of these songs, I still hear on a regular basis, like in the bar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the cultural impacts is pretty impressive. One of those movies that had a big impact that a lot of people don't realize where that impact came from. You know, there's a lot of people that aren't aware of the movie Valley Girl. Right. Nevertheless, they know a lot yeah. of the things that came out of it. Um, yeah. And so pretty if you haven't seen it, feet for a little you movie. should see it in the transfer that's actually on. Oh, yeah. I saw it on Amazon Prime, and the transfer is gorgeous. So it looks great. So, yeah, check Which out Which might Valley be the shout, shout Factory transfer. I know they had they put out a really nice disc a while back, so yeah. could be that they just used that transfer because it does look f- fantastic. All those driving scenes through Hollywood, like um, yeah, lovely, beautiful yeah. looking stuff. We love us some Shout Factory. No, man. no rear, no yeah, rear screen like uh, Breathless or another movie that we're going to be talking about later. <laughs> uh, before we talk yeah. about that, John. So, John, do you want to talk about the other one that you that you brought? Yeah. So this will be a, a real diversion from what we've been talking about style and topic and everything yeah you know i was trying to think there's a few movies i wanted to talk about from 1983 but this one in particular i want to talk about and i think it's kind of on brand for us because it's a it's a scott brothers movie it's a tony scott's first um major motion picture and that's the hunger sarah roberts is in jeopardy hey lady how about it stay with her help her for she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. Uh, starring David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, uh, Susan Sarandon. What a movie. I, 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 People hated this movie, right? Oh, I Wasn't hated this it like when it came out. Very, I was so... Very I was, hated when it came out. I, I really... I, li- I like it much more now, but when it first came out, talk about shock of the new just i think that the that this was a real harbinger of mtv fast cutting it felt like Mm. it was cut so fast 
it felt so obnoxious mm-hmm. in terms of what it was doing with sound and picture when it came out that I was really put off by it. But, um, but I, you know, now you watch it and you're not, it's not, it's nothing. It just looks like yeah, the way movies were made in it, you know? Well, did it offend your sensibilities as a screenwriter a little bit? Because as I, every time I watch this movie, I go, I have no idea what this looks like on paper. No clue. I have no idea. Like, have you ever read what... the script or seen it? I never read the book that it was based on, and I have no idea what happens at the end of the movie. <laughs> still, I still don't know no, what I happens know. in the last 10 minutes of the movie. Um, <laughs> but I kind of, by that time, don't care because it's no. delivered on so many other levels, and it's and it's really beautiful, and Bowie is so good in it, and Sarandon's great, and Kathleen Deneuve is, is great, and what scott does with lenses is real and and light and shadow it's such a gorgeous movie to look at yeah it looks like Mm -hmm. a perfume commercial but but a very bloody perfume commercial uh and it's it's such a strange film but i really find it hypnotic and it it it, it's perfect pick for the early 1980s because it really does define Mm. This what what uh, uh, David Bordwell would come to call uh, intensified continuity, which is this mm-hmm. um, willingness to go from short to long lenses, uh, unmotivated camera movement, rapid cutting, lots of close ups. Those are kind of his four things. And those are all the things that we would see that would dominate um, MTV music video style in the 80s with directors like Russell right. Mulcahy and and, uh, uh, and Girardi and those the other. Yeah, Stephen Goldblatt, who shot this, also shot The Cotton Club and Lethal Weapon, if you want to go for 80s personified. <laughs> also, Outland, if you want to go for Not Great. What? Or mm-hmm. Pig-Faced Little Boys. Outland? So. Peter, he shot Peter Outland Himes for didn't, Peter Himes. Peter Himes didn't shoot it himself? Peter isn't... isn't uh, evidently wow. not. He's, he's listed as DP for Outland. Huh. So we have him to thank for getting that pig-faced little boy on screen. So God bless him for that. Jason often often needs to talk about Sean Connery's son from Outland. I need to, I need to expel (laughs) the hatred that builds up. It's sort of like an emergency steam venting, right? It's like in aliens with the reactor venting. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, Yeah. The whole mummy's coming out of there at the end. I don't, I don't. Yeah. It's it's fine. Former victims coming back to haunt. Correct. Like I can't think of anything else. Why now? Because... Right. What summons them? Is yeah, Sarah yeah. sacrificing herself? See, the, s- the questions are probably not the best way to approach talking about this movie. That's right. Like, <laughs> asking that's right. questions. Right. It really doesn't care. Um, and, and to me, yeah. in a way, that's to its benefit. Like, I almost like it better. I think the first time I saw it, I was put off by it as well. But I remember thinking, well, it's beautiful. It has that look that I love, that 80s. I like perfume commercials, Mitch. Like, I don't know. You yeah. It's kind of said it in the pejorative or in the, close to pejorative, but I always like that stuff. And this movie, it feels like a beautiful nightmare, right? It's where any kind of connection to logic or, or con- like you talk about a certain kind of continuity. There's no kind of continuity narratively here that I can tell. Yeah. And big moments like murdering a little girl, you know, in cold blood right in front of us. Um, uh, it's a little disturbing, but it kind of f- ends up going away. <laughs> you know, the, it doesn't really impact much. It just brings Dan Hedaya around, which, hey, that's always a big impact on a movie, just good. bringing Dan Hedaya to always the scene. Good. But uh, And does he not look like a stylish guy? In this? I, it's Almost. so funny. You bring in Dan Hedaya, who is, who is, who is playing Nick Tortelli simultaneously, 
um, the uh, the hairiest, ugliest, schlubbiest guy, and he's got this like kind of stylish bit of hair like raised up on the top a little bit, almost almost like a Carter Burke and <laughs> Aliens, and and like it almost looks like he's trying to be a stylish guy. I was like Dan Hedaya. I don't know if he's the right guy for it, but it works fine. But there's really not, nothing really ever impacts anything. Like this movie kind of happens, things happen, and then something you start to feel it. Like once Susan Sarandon gets um, infected and has to go through her withdrawals and so on, then you're kind of feeling it. But that's way into the movie. Mm-hmm. Like you're too far into the movie for that to really fit into any sort of Sid Field idea of how a screenplay should be written. Right. So it's just off putting in a, in a way, you but. Know it, it. Bowie's gone so soon, and I'm not really sure why. Like, okay, so he, he's run out of ability to stop aging. Some can somebody yeah, explain that one to me because I don't quite that's get what the he's ex- worried about. He's he's trying to see see if there's something that can be reversed because somehow he started to in, to age rapidly. Right, years in days. So I better go to a gerontologist. But what? How, why? Exactly. What? What? In, what that question prompted all this to happen through the movie. Why? Why does this happen? Why now? Why yeah. now? Well, that Why because now? he gets it right that that he gets eternal life but not eternal youth, right? So he wants to. Oh, because he's still he, alive. He's like, yeah. He realized that Miriam kind of Miriam kind of bullshitted right. him a little bit. Right. Right. So he doesn't get the eternal. He, he's not going to stay Bowie forever. He's going to turn into Willard Scott at some point. So what do you do? You, you better Collins. seek somebody out. And and you know if you live that life, right? I mean. He's he's paid the price. He murders people to stay like this. So he's you know he's going to fight to stay like that. Mm-hmm. And I get it. But at the same time, it's uh, you also I, I the movie feels like we're maybe supposed to feel some of that ennui of eternal life, right? Or am I yeah. crazy? You know for sure, right? So yeah, I I feel like that's you know he's he's we he's already made the ultimate bargain by killing people to stay who he is and where he is and with whom he is with. So yeah, he's gonna he's so, gonna go to a meta, although it's like a, what do you tell her, dude? Like it, it well, I've, I've started getting really old, like like nine years just last Wednesday. So uh, is there like a pill? What can you give me? <laughs> can you surgery me yeah. up a little bit? Like what's he? What's she really gonna do? Okay, so but if so if he got bullshitted, then why didn't she? Why isn't she also going through this? Like wouldn't you're saying so she was the one that that first turned him well miriam's the vampire right not she's like she's the immortal right. one so, so she's, she's the only one that is okay man right right oh that's why you know she she just she's got she just puts him in the coffin with all the other lovers because eventually i think she probably betrays them all and mm-hmm. not necessarily betrays but they realize i'm never ever ever i'm not going to stay like she is i'm not going to be beautiful my whole life she chose me because i'm beautiful she changed me when I was young. I entered this bargain, this murderous bargain with her, but I'm actually going to get eternal life, but I'm actually going to look awful. I'm going to become William Hickey. Well, I think you're at some I think point. you just no, I think you're going to die. Right? Are you you're going to become so so right. incapable of of do, moving around or anything that you may as well be dead. She puts you You're going to want to die, but yeah, she says yeah, there she is she no release. The, remember, right, he begs you in the box. So all yeah. of those so right. all of those mummies are were in the same boat as him yeah basically yeah. but we just don't yeah. see their story and so and then the so then so i'm trying to i'm unpacking the narrative here i think so bowie is who we meet and he's the first one that has knowledge of it that then he passes that knowledge to another person in the 
Susan Sarandon. So Susan Sarandon at least finds out that this can happen. And so she's the one that provides the comeuppance, right? And then by sacrificing herself or however that... Let's <laughs> see what... And so she's the only one that's like, I know how to get ahead of this thing. <laughs> and I get back at you. I mean, it's still all... Is I'm like not the, fully It's like pushes the alarm button for the mummies. Mm-hmm. I don't get that. Yeah, I don't either. But, but it's okay. okay. It's okay. It's still really it's gorgeous style. to look at. It's a style exercise. Right. The whole thing's I, a style exercise, and it's yeah. fine. It, and I enjoy it on that level. It is. Um, but it is frustrating to try to talk about it on a story level. So I... I <laughs> it's very frustrating. Well, I would love to see the, like, the actual pages from the screenplay. Like, That's what I'm know, saying. I have this, no idea what they could possibly look like. She slashes her throat. This provokes John and the other mummies to rise up in rage. <laughs> How? Like, why? why? But it, you're right. It, it is the ultimate style over substance. And the style is so engrossing and so beautiful it that is. you don't really care. I don't like care as as much. Mitch puts it. He likes the movie despite not really understanding the last 10 minutes. And Mitch is a smart guy. He is. That's true. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not alone in that, right? I mean, Mitch likes Jaws 3D. Yeah, that's true. That's a smart that's guy. True. That's a smart guy. I keep thinking that you maybe misunderstood what was said about Jaws 3D earlier, Jason. But I, don't I, I, I understood that you guys love it, and that's enough for me. <laughs> that is absolutely enough for me. We're all so on board. So let's move to the last movie that we have. Is that okay? Oh, wait. Is it, sure. We only have one more? Oh, we do. Yeah, have one more. this is okay. it. This is it. It saved the longest one for the last. And, right. um, and it's a movie that I really, really love, but I also find that there's about 25 minutes to 30 minutes of it that I just can barely watch anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, anymore? And, when did that start? Just before you announced it. And, and, like, I, when did when did you start getting soured about on About the, like, I don't know, 30th time I saw it or something, where it's okay. just kind of like, oh, so this took part, a while. Uh, this part is just, I'm just, why? You, like, built up an immunity Why are we taking okay. so long? Yeah. Um, and that movie is... Um, what movie are we, we talking about? Yeah, It's Brian De Palma's um, Scarface. So I, I do feel like we should say that we do acknowledge that we know that we just talked about this movie a few months ago on the podcast. I just want to get that out of the way in case people are just like, they're talking about Scarface again? We did. It's we'll, fine because we're changing... We'll the context is different here. It. Yeah, we're talking We about talked it. about it as a part of the quadfecta, De Palma quadfecta, but... Um, in this case, we're talking about it in the context of when it came out, and we'll have other things to say about it. So I yeah, I have I have less to say about De Palma today because we talked about him a lot. I will say this: that the last time I watched it, which was just a couple nights ago, one of the things that's so sounds so dopey, but I really paid attention to the way he uses the crane and how many shots mm-hmm. are crane shots, and how he uses the crane to move through spaces. And even follow just like that the Rabenga murder when he when he's when when Rabenga's being you know everybody's yelling at him and he's about to kill him and and it's a beautiful crane shot moving through this building with him, but I and it's I I love the scale of the movie I as we probably discussed before you know for a while it was going to be a Sidney Lumet movie and De Palma was going to do Prince of the City and then by the time everything gets done and shaken out they flipped and and you know, Lumet directs Prince of the City De Palma directs Scarface. And he directs it with such complete abandon. And it's so... I'm, Fernando Scarfiotti's production design is incredible. Giorgio Moroder's music is amazing. I think Giorgio Armani did, did, some, of the, did some of the costumes. Um, it's so stylish. Mm. It's so 80s. It's so excessive. Um, it's also probably so offensive to anybody who's Cuban seeing all of these actors mm. doing cockamamie Cuban 
or Colombian accents. Not even any of them even close to a Cuban. It's just right? crazy. Or any of them? Yeah, it's just – and so that's another reason that <laughs> it's like, wild. you know, I my – yeah. But all of that said um, – and the part that I don't like is after Tony gets rich and after he's got the scene in the bathtub, there's about 25 minutes of him getting arrested and then making bail and then insulting people at a restaurant and then having scenes with lawyers. And it's just like, uh, it's just boring. He's neither rising. It does kind of come to us. Right. He's neither yeah, rising. The energy nor level of the movie before that. Yeah, yeah. He's treading water. It's so funny, it. Mitch. When I was watching the movie this morning, I realized that I wasn't going to have enough time to watch the whole thing. Yeah. And right after the bathroom scene, I yeah. scanned ahead to New York City. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I, I looked on the little bar below. I just scanned until it said New York City. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah it's because I knew. I, I knew. Yeah. Up to the assassination, yeah. which I love yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. It um, gets, the movie oh, gets I back do. On, I do. It gets back on track. It's almost like yeah. they should have gone from the, they just should have gone from the bathtub to New York City, <laughs> you know, just I don't care well, about him. Getting, he needed to have he, he needed to have some pressure put on him, though, to do yeah, the New York City thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so some way they had to put some pressure on him. But yeah, uh, yeah I'm in, I'm in a very similar boat with this movie as you like when I was young, I thought it was just incredible front to back. I didn't care about anything other than that. It was just hilarious, funny, bloody, crazy movie that yeah. also, you know, I'm mm. coming up in the era of like late 80s early 90s hip-hop where they really loved it too so like scarface got talked about in a lot of rap songs that i like so it was like part of the community or part of the um yeah. fun of the whole thing but as i get older it's a movie that i like and tolerate at the same time like where it's there's certain parts of it that i if if, if i watch it from time to time there's certain parts that i can't quite tolerate and i'm not enjoying it and then Sometimes I can watch it. Well, I could tolerate these parts that I don't like as much and enjoy the movie. So it, I don't love it, and I and I'm I hasten to talk. I don't I don't know if I'd be repeating myself um, from the earlier episode to talk about it that much, but um, it's an interesting piece of all these you know part of all these movies we're talking about. It's very different from all the other movies that we're talking about. I guess it's closest to, in a way to to the hunger, but not really at all, right? Like, and it's certainly not having the same kind of fun that the other movies that we're talking about. Even though it's having some fun, it's not as fun on the in the way that a Valley Girl or a Risky Business is, you know. So it's really different. What what is another movie? So just getting out of the side of summer, what's another movie in nineteen eighty three that even would compare to this movie? Like, was there an, any other crime, epic things that came out that year? It just didn't seem like the year for him. So this is, might be an outlier. Eighty three. Huh. I just don't. That's a good question. You, I don't, you mentioned Prince hmm. of the City. That was eighty. That was like eighty or eighty one, right? Um, Vice, well, Vice Squad wouldn't. No, that was like eighty. No, and that wouldn't really uh, match up. Uh, huh. It's just kind of interesting. Like I'm it's, it's sh- kind like of stands big... on its own in the whole year. Um, there's a great. Releases. I guess Mr. Mom. There's a great crime picture called Bad Boys. Mr. Mom. That came out. <laughs> Remember that? The Sean, the Sean Penn, Penn one. Yeah. Was, yeah, Clancy Brown. Sean Penn. Oh, I thought that was a lot earlier than that. That's a prison Cri- picture crime. more though, it's, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, prison, but it's a it's a hard edged crime movie that has. Um, but yeah, as I look through the list just off the top of my head, uh, there's, there was not a lot of Gorky Park came out that year. Um, but, but I could have talked about the keep too, just so you know, the keep came out. Yeah. I think that I could have talked about that. My point really is, is that this is just like a real outlier movie for this time. Like they weren't, there weren't a lot of movies that were big 
blustery, super violent crime films at yeah. this level. It just kind of was sort of this, you know, convergence problem, yeah, of Oliver I think Stone right and the closest you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably the closest you're going to get. It's probably Max Dugan returns. Yeah, that's easily the closest. So. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. It kind of does fall off a cliff for like 20 minutes in terms of its energy. But I, I get that there has to be something so that Sosa can have leverage, right? So that Sosa mm -hmm. can can put the squeeze on him a little bit. But you're right. Uh, tax evasion is is so uninteresting. Uh, but I, I also I also get it. It's also a crime that Sosa could make go away. So. It feels like a necessary evil mm -hmm. to bridge to New York City. You just don't have to like it. It's like so just, sort of flying spirit. It'll get you to New York City. You're just not going to have a good journey, right? So, I mean, but unlike uh, air travel, you know, you can make it much shorter if you just choose to. You don't have to make it last 25 <laughs> minutes. Um, we yeah. You easily got the really same job long? done with a that's scene the, or two. It's pretty long, yeah. 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 yeah, that's uh, yeah. I think ten minutes. But would again, be, that's would the that's there. the yeah. trick of the movie. It's like everything is long. Every scene is played yep. out longer than we're used to because the idea was to make this this big three hour gargantuan epic crime yeah. saga. God, hundred and seventy you know, minutes. The way Oof. that Heat is a big gargantuan crime saga, right. which probably could be shorter. Um, but there was something about the, and also I suppose you know the cocaine culture coming to a. You know, it was it was happening, and and so it has a lot of things that fit for 1983 in a weird way, both looking mm -hmm. forward and looking back. And Pacino is he's you know he's still youthful and energetic, and mm. he's I mean it's a crazy swing for the fence kind of performance, um, and it and it keeps you galvanized. You know, I mean it's a it's such a wild movie. I'm I'm just kind of amazed that it exists in some ways. It it is, I, it is something, man. Like it's it's, it announces itself right from the beginning. You know that this is going to be. You know I think, the the title sequence kind of gives it this sort of documentary feel, right? Like okay, we're getting into some real world shit here, um, and then it's this big comic book kind of thing at the same yeah. time. You know, it's like, it's doing these two different things at the same time. It's like. It, it announces a real news, a real th event that happened in the real world, and this is going to be the result of it, but the result of it is this outlandish cartoon of a character instead of anybody grounded in real. It makes you th it makes you wonder about the Lamette version, um, which obviously, like, uh, Prince of the City is much more of a docudrama kind of approach than this is. So, and then, uh, as soon as you say Sidney Lamette, though, I can't picture him directing... A Miami movie, like, <laughs> like, would he have moved it to New York? Would he have somehow made it a New York what movie? What about De Niro as Tony Montana? He got yeah. offered the role first. What would that, that have been, been like? That would have been interesting. Where did I don't know? Where did it, Q I can't imagine it would have been any anywhere half as big as the performance. Did, did Q and A take in. place in Miami or in, or was that New York too? I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember either. Think God. so, but okay. maybe. Um, um, but yeah, but I, would, yeah. I just think of Lamet makes me think New York every time. No, it's for just sure. Whether he yeah. always, yeah. yeah. Lamet would not have us start the movie with a 360 going around Pacino, a big winner with all of the other actors uh, being dubbed by Dennis Franz and Charles Durning and others. Uh, those, you know, their mouths don't match <laughs> that's up. So but that's okay. Um, and then from that, cut to this shot where they're on the bus that is so clearly a process shot 
and the camera is it's so clearly in a studio in a phony bus and it's like De Palma is just saying you know his camera's tracking along the side of the bus he's clearly just saying okay everybody this is not going to be a naturalistic movie even though we showed you that that mm. newsreel footage shit at the beginning um, <laughs> you know this right. is a big old comic book of a movie well he could always lean on the this is a remake of a classic film Right. You know, so he could always go. Well, we're we're always having this little conversation with the Howard Hawks, mm-hmm. Scarface, right? So um, if I if it looks a little phony here, well, you know, that's that's the kind of movie we're making. So right. it's interesting. It's almost like you could have any, do any make any choice you want. You can, it's grounded in a real world, but it's a cartoon. It's you know, we use these big lavish crane shots, which are in vogue now, but we can also do process shots like rickety, like stagehands are actually like rocking the the. facade of the bus back and forth you know we could do all of that if we want to um just real quick note q a was new york but there was a little bit shot in puerto rico okay so that might be what you're thinking yeah i was i was thinking about puerto rico yeah but Um, yeah so i don't know i feel like it's a marker i remember seeing it that summer and i remember people reacting to the shootout at the end um I remember I was so I would have been like I don't know 83 so I guess I would have been 20 22 or something and I remember going to this bar in Hutchinson Kansas after seeing it at the Big Fox Theater um, and there are these two <laughs> there are these two Vietnam vets who were there and were just like losing their minds during the the shootout at the end and they happened to be at this bar that we wound up at and I still remember these guys just being over out of their minds over the over the action and it was just so weird I remember mm-hmm. one guy going he pulled the grenade launcher out and I got a hard on I just thought, I just thought <laughs> oh, oh my god, god. <laughs> see so much of how this movie uh, structured it's interesting because so much of the movie without that ending being what it is the balls out craziness of the action at the end I wonder how audiences would have uh, would have accepted it without that had it had a different kind of ending, like something a little bit more grounded. And not like so much of pe- so many people came out of the movie and only thought of that last like fifteen minutes as the movie. Wow, right? Man, like I bet right. you that happened a lot. I'm pretty sure. My I remember my roommate in college. He had never seen it, so I showed it to him, and I just remembered him. He loved it from the New York sequence on, but mainly like when he shoots the guy in the car and then he goes, how you like me now? Right. Like it's what he says. And my, I remember my roommate laughing maniacally. Like he was just so shocked and like amused by that. And then that's, he would say that when we were playing basketball all the time, like, you know, so it became that kind of thing is my point. It wasn't like to be taken seriously. It was just a Mm. fun action movie. And it's like, whoa! It's not that at all. <laughs> like, it's it has some of that again. This movie tries to like dip into everything. It wants to take from everything and get credit for it all. Yeah. And some of it is just intolerable to me. And some of it, I do love the whole ending sequence. It's just too much fun and too crazy to not enjoy. So I don't know. It's a it's a crazy movie. It's like really its own beast. I don't know how, what else compares to it really. Yeah, there isn't anything really like it. You're right. It it, it certainly not at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that Glenn Close was who they originally wanted for Elvira. I thought that's that would have oh. been if a picture Glenn Close and 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 De Niro in those two roles, and how different that movie would have been because that's who was originally movie. up for him. Completely different yeah, movie would have wildly different. I mean, De, De Niro would have insisted on on different choices all the way through, wouldn't he? Like, I can't imagine De Niro even trying any of this stuff uh, that Pacino's doing. I don't, yeah, know. I don't know. I um, mean, this is the first big Al performance, right? 
This was when it's... This is Big I... Al. The beginning of Big Al. Yeah. Well, no, wait. What? Uh, Injustice what, author, for All. When was Injustice for All? Seriously. What, what, oh, was, that, that's pretty... 80? Yeah. 80? Uh, 80, I think. The... the this whole courtroom's yeah. out of order might have been the inception of that might have been the birth of yeah. Big Al, yeah. right? Well, I also know that for Gina, where Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, it was originally Dan Hedaya who was up for that. So <laughs> imagine how different sense. that would have been. Fully waxed Dan Hedaya. It's my everybody call her the Hedgehog, man. Uh, that would have been amazing. <laughs> would have been an incredible role. Hedaya would have aced it. Yeah, would have just owned the screen. Uh, yeah, I will say it's interesting how how Scarface is a movie like Apocalypse Now, that a certain kind of generally middle aged white male film goer has put on this pedestal. Mm-hmm. It's very weird. Guys who kind of fancy themselves as you know, I'm really into movies, but they kind of aren't really. <laughs> but they'll hold up Apocalypse Now and Scarface as these interesting as these twin pillars. Of of cinematic excellence, mm-hmm. one I certainly buy. The other, mm-hmm. I, I kind of uh, don't. <laughs> but it's interesting that Scarface has that kind of immortality. I think Heat is the other at least one. among a certain sort. Heat Heat definitely falls in that category too. Yes, um, yeah, it's yeah, masculine gunplay, but but with the with with the, this sort of enough drama that they can grab onto and and convince whatever hapless girlfriend or wife they're forcing <laughs> to watch it. That it's not an action movie, right? Right. So, it's it's yeah, cinema I with a capital C, it. yet it's still an action movie. You know what I mean? It still has all the pleasures of gunplay and car chases, but it's cinema, you know, too. So it makes you feel a little sure. bit more. Uh, yeah. Sorry, we're not trying to talk down on it to anyone. That's I'm not going to sit through some Marvel trash, but I'll watch Scarface. Yeah, that kind of that kind of. Oh, those vibe. those people also sent through the Marvel trash. The, the people that we're talking about. They, well, yes, they do. Yes, they, they do. But but they'll say it. Well, that was no heat or anything, but uh, it was pretty good, I guess. <laughs> well said, Maricone. Well said. <laughs> wow. Well, yep. there we go, Mitch well, Bryan. Good choice, buddy. It. Very '80s he's choice. Done it. Very 1983 choice, Mitch Bryan. Great choices to Very. everybody. Thank you. You know, well, it's fun. obviously, except I mean, for Jaws 3D, all, of course. But, yes, but right, which was a fantastic choice, not a great choice. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that once again we're all sort of in silent agreement on that. If you didn't, and pick, I'm going to officially somebody hadn't close that picked, discussion with you guys. If somebody hadn't picked a sequel, it wouldn't be right for '83, right? I mean, true. Yeah, and again, the the year of bad sequels, with the exception of Jedi, which is the weakest, certainly, of the original trilogy, it was a a year of bad sequels. Psycho 2 is not very good. Psycho 3 was actually better than Psycho 2. I disagree. I like Psycho 2. And and you're allowed to, but as long as you're with me on Jaws 3D, I'm not with you on Jaws 3D. I'm not with you on Porky's 2, which I know you love that as well. Or was the it Porky's day? 3 this what? year? What, was this what? Porky's 3 this year or 2? I can't remember which one came out this year. Um, it was all, what other sequels well, did we get I, that year? Uh, just kind of curious. Uh, we got Amityville 3D, which uh, we got um, Psycho Superman 2. Superman 3. We could have very easily talked about Superman I, 3. I, I, that was, I debated it. I debated it, but it's, no, it's, yeah. It was Porky, uh, Porky's God, we too. DC, we also DC Cab. Oof. There was some consideration on my part of talking about Twilight Zone the movie, but then I thought that that takes that's a that's a whole other thing to unpack. That's a whole show. Yeah, that's a whole that's thing a whole to unpack show. that can't really just be put into 1983. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to see. Oh, I'm Sting just kinda... 2. That's right, the Sting 2. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. Well, there's a great idea for a sequel. Let's recapture that magic. <laughs> With a different cast. With a different cast. Yeah. Um, other good movies. You know what made the Sting work? We could just swap in Jackie Gleason and Mac Davis. Uh, Staying Mac Alive. Davis, for God's sake. Staying Alive, a sequel. Ooh, wow. Yeah, there's another sequel. Nice. That made good money. It made made good money, but boy, was it a shitter. Um, <laughs> shitter. I'm trying to think of Christine. Uh, other good <laughs> <laughs> nice 83 nice other good movies that came out that that summer that um i mean apparently the tootsie tootsie didn't come out was tootsie still was making money I think. yeah it's still making enough money the next year to be on the list of box office wow. to be in the top 25 you got, your, box got your stroker ace stroker ace which i was dying oh man i wanted to see stroker ace so bad my parents wouldn't take me to see it <laughs> of course they would you got strange brew Stroke Race was July 1st, too. That was a, oh, and, and a bit of a dud. Uh, budget of 14, box office 11. Uh, Curse of the Pink Panther so, in 83 summer. Just goes to prove oh, to wow. you that Ned Beatty and Jim Neighbors and Parker Stevenson are not going to open your, your big summer movie. Probably the best two movies that, that, fin- that they end the, they round out the top 50 of, in box office that year. Almost uh, the main, uh, Local Hero, number 48, and Meaning of Life, Monty mm. Python's The Meaning of Life, number 50. Maybe the two, my two favorite movies on the whole list of movies. Both great um, movies. Both great movies. Uh, for 1983, summer 1983. Both fantastic movies. Nobody went to see, apparently. Well, but, uh, yeah. I didn't I'm, realize Meaning yeah, of Life right was Yeah, Right Stuff was released in October. Right yeah. Stuff was, they dropped it in October. What the hell kind of release date was that? Well, weren't they up against it? Didn't they have production issues right up to the end? Like, I it took so. them a long time. I guess that, yeah, it could have been, but yeah. it, you'd think that you'd wait till till Christmas. Yeah, but I guess you would. Warner's you had would think another big Oscar Christmas stuff. movie. Yeah. Well, and, and it was a gigantic flop, so. Uh, yeah. It, there were, terrible as was Videodrome. Right stuff. You know, there were several great movies. Videodrome was earlier in the year. Flops. Hard to believe yeah. that a movie as family-friendly and accessible as Videodrome <laughs> was a failure. That's interesting to me. It's, it's, it had that, it had Blondie in it. Um, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, that's true. You had a Marshall McLuhan knockoff. I mean, how could the family not line up for Videodrome? Right. Samurai Dreams? Kids love it. <laughs> Kids love Canadian public access porn. Kids love Civic TV. Yeah, man. The one you take to bed with you. Uh, I love Videodrome, too, but I remember the first time I saw it as a pretentious-as-hell high schooler that I, I finally looked over at my best friend. I'm like, I don't get it. So I needed needed a little bit more seasoning to really wow. take in and appreciate Videodrome. I love – so if we're going to talk about Videodrome for a second, I loved it, but I was so grossed out by it at the same time. Like, I felt that – like, I had to take a shower after I watched it, but I loved it anyway you know that's how i feel i kind of feel about that way about it every time i watch it but especially the first time i watched it i was just like oh there's something just particularly gross about that movie i didn't get it i feel embarrassed i really didn't get it and i love it but i the first time i saw it i was just so confused by it (laughs) i didn't i didn't read it right i don't know what i was expecting yeah We've never really talked about. I, Cronenberg did, I remember very at the very much. beginning yeah. when Max gets his wake up video, his his wake up videotape from Bridie, and her dialogue is, "This is your girl Friday, Bridie James," and for the longest time until closed captions became available on like some DVD, I I was completely baffled by Friday and Bridie being together, and yeah. they sort of all became, and I didn't 
So that was how simplistic my approach to video drum was. Initially. Well, I could say so. that if I would have written that line, and then when I go back to read the dialogue back to myself, to me, I definitely would have rewritten that line because you're right; it's a little mush mouthy, a little marbly mouth of, of a bit of dialogue to have to deliver. But right, yeah. like just say, "This is your girl Friday, the invaluable Bridie James." Put Anything, in something. Yeah. Buffer she's it. Mm -hmm. flattering herself a little bit in that in that anyway but mm -hmm. i'm fine i'm fine the rest of the movie well you know i i often have long fancied myself as smarter than mitch bryan i now have proof <laughs> because mitch didn't, didn't get it fully embrace jaws 3d and doesn't give video drone so i wouldn't even get him started or on the, the end of the too, hunger you know i'm so dumb um, the, uh, why are them mummies waking up? What's the, going on? The one movie that got made in uh, in '83 that won a bunch of festivals, but that didn't come out for a couple more years, and I didn't talk about it because it's really hard to find, is a movie called Utu from New Zealand. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. this was your original yeah, pick, and right? If and I just want if anybody has a chance to see Utu, you should it's because like it's Maori, a Maori martial arts movie, kind of. It's is not a martial is? arts movie. It's a historical. Um, oh, it's about yeah, it's about uh, right. Maori uprising and murders and and pursuit. And oh, okay. It's fantastic. It was made by Jeff Murphy. I feel like may the, he rest in peace. Who I who also where the marketing material looked like a looked like it was supposed to be a martial arts movie to me. Oh, maybe this is my my problem with his face with the tattoos. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I just a Maori word own. referring to ritualized revenge or payback to restore balance is what Utu is. And then that's what the that's the title of the movie, but that's what the word actually means. You've wow. never yeah, seen I've, it, Jason? Oh, it has Anzac it. Wallace in it, who was uh -huh. also in um, Warriors, right? Uh, uh, Warriors? Uh, uh, no, uh, the Quiet Earth. Quiet Earth. He which was the the same, Maori lead in the Quiet director. Earth, which is the same director. Yeah. And Free Jack. <laughs> also oh, same director, Free Jack, yeah. and Young Gun, Young Guns uh, too. Well, and he also did Under Siege 2, which was an amazingly great sequel. So, you know. Eric Bogosian and, uh, come on, and Everett McGill, know, that's man. a great movie. Under Siege 2 know, is man. great. Forget the fact that Seagal is in the middle of it. Bogosian and Everett McGill are fantastic villains. That movie's great. That movie's great. The fa In spite of being a Steven Seagal movie. Let me put it that way. And he is not as pear-shaped as he would later become. Yes, he wears all black, but like the muumuu or the sarong or whatever he is taken to wearing lately when he's, you know, doing his photo ops with Putin or whatever, or playing deputy sheriff in Louisiana, that wasn't yet present. He was still mostly in good shape and could sell it. But Jeff Murphy directed arguably the best Steven Seagal sequel out there. You're welcome, America. Well, folks, uh, so many more films to talk about. So little time today, but we will um, be back on the feed with something exciting soon um there's even we can't find another 10 minutes for under siege 2 <laughs> dark territory nope. we can't find no we can't Is there thanks everybody the no nope. thanks, thanks everybody for listening <laughs> we gotta go to commercial i guess <laughs> bye everybody bye thanks fine. jason that's fine blue thunder next yeah, my pleasure you. my pleasure yep blue thunder's coming <laughs> we just made a promise on the air